SequelCast 2 and Friends is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, go to greenlitpodcast.com. Here as you commanded. The Magic Mirror. The Magic Shield. And the Magic Chest. Hello and welcome to Sierra Quest, a podcast looking at the Adventure Games of Sierra Online, one game at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shirky, with me as Thresher. You better bow to the king. That's right. We, uh, sorry for the delay, listeners, but, you know, we've, um, sometimes life happens and work and things get busy, but uh, we wrapped up the high-res Sierra adventures with the uh, text parser and the still images, and now we're going into the world of animation and hot arcade action and all the stuff the box promised with the first of, I think people mostly think of this as Sierra's first game, although it's not, it's like their first big hit that kicks off their, uh, I guess you could say their quest line (laughs) with King's Quest, uh, later retitled King's Quest 1, Quest for the Crown. This this is what their uh, games are going to look like and how they're going to play for quite some time. We're talking about the original uh, SEI version as the the Sierra Creative Interpreter is the engine they're using. And uh, I don't know about you, Thrasher, but this is not the first Sierra game I played. Um, oh, wanna, same here. Which was your first? I'm sure we've talked about this in the show, but it's been a while. I think that context is always good for listeners. Uh, mine would have been uh, Quest for Glory 2. Oh, wow. Um, mine was, I was in a, a school and a private school in Buenos Aires, Argentina. We had uh, Apple II GSs in the computer lab, and it was the Black Cauldron. So um, it used a more simplified version of this interface, and it'll be great when we get there. Oh, you know what? I, I take Disney it movie. back. I played Black Cauldron at a friend's house before I played uh, Quest for Glory 2. How about that? Huh? Had you seen the cartoon before? Because I hadn't. No, I had seen it. That was a, that was a, an animated film that I that I did not get a chance to see until it came out on home video in the early two thousands. I remember all the previews and all the behind the scenes stuff that was on television, and then that movie just kind of came and went. <laughs> Never got a chance to see it. Yeah, it was very. I mean, much like Sleeping Beauty, it was very expensive. It was a flop um, at the time. I mean, perhaps built now, and I'm really surprised, especially when uh, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies were everywhere that they didn't try remaking uh, Lloyd Alexander's Perdane Chronicles as a live-action thing. Oh, it's give like, them time. When Disney decides it wants a fantasy quadrilogy, it's going to crack those books open again. Some studio got the rights and was working on a script, but it never went off the ground. But it's like if Bridge to... It's not really the same thing, but Bridge to Terabithia got a movie. Like, you had some some more obscure, award-winning... Uh, um, I don't know if you call them children novels or what the word is now. Teen-lit... Uh, but uh, that's neither here nor there. King's Quest. What I like is it has such a simple story, and this is kind of, you know, a lot of these um, other games we were talking about in, in the past episodes. You can find those at sequelcast2.com. Is uh, you can see the how do you say it? Uh, the other games are like scavenger hunts, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of finding the right thing to do a certain thing to get to another thing. Mm-hmm, and getting all the points. And this, it has more of a narrative, even though, I mean, it may not seem like it. You are, uh, in this one, you're Graham, and the king is old and dying, and he says, you know, if you find these three uh, treasures I'm looking for, you can be the king. Well, that's that's a big change-up, because unlike unlike the other games, you are a very specific named character in this game, and your relationship yeah. to the king yep. is important as the game begins. Yeah, a friend of mine growing up, uh, Eric, um, he, uh, his dad worked for IBM his whole career, and in his basement he had a PC Junior uh, with King's Quest on it, which is the platform it was originally developed for. Um, unfortunately, PC Junior uh, was kind of an entry-level PC thing. Uh, for the home user, uh, back when PCs, um, PC stands for personal computer, um, if you might not know that, but, uh, you know, they, they were very expensive at the home. $1,000 was worth a lot more then than it, did, than it was now, and stuff was several thousand dollars. PC Junior is meant to be an entry-level system, uh, more game-focused, and um, it was a big flop, but fortunately, in the way King's Quest was written, it could be ported to different platforms, um, like Apple and IBM compatible and, and all these things, and 
and the Tandy and all those different systems. So I think that's something Sierra was always very good at, making sure their games were available in multiple computer platforms. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because I mean, you you had a um, Macs pretty or Apple's pretty much growing up, right, for the computer platform. Uh, oh no, wait, no, well my my family was very slow to adopt home computing. Uh, we huh, didn't okay. we didn't have a home computer until the nineties, and it was uh and it was a a, a PC. Uh, I didn't get involved with Macintosh stuff until college. Um, I didn't realize that. Okay. Huh. Yeah. So, so, so when I played, you know, when I played uh, Black Cauldron, that was on a friend's computer. And the first time I played Quest for Glory 2, that was on my uncle's computer because he just happened to have it for whatever reason. Yeah. One of my uncles had a Amiga. Um, we didn't have a home computer that, you know, wasn't strictly for work until the 90s either. But I, my dad did have a 386 for work that only had a PC speaker, no sound card, and Windows 3.0. <laughs> And uh, I would play stuff on it, even though in the PC speaker, um, it, which is what King's Quest uses, by the way, you cannot turn down the volume on that. Yeah, thing. it's just kind of there. <laughs> it, it, it's full blast squawking, and I kind of love it for that. Um, and uh, one of the early versions of this was on the Tandy, and the Tandy had a more advanced kind of PC speaker theme. So for old game, for like the original King's Quest and the Space Quest, if you listen to those uh, game soundtracks, they have a few more like um, notes or the ability to play more stuff simultaneously. So it gives it a bit more um, rich arrangements, uh, although saying rich arrangements with PC speakers kind of odd, but you know what I'm getting at. So Roberta Williams, you know, she did the, the co-founder of Sierra with um, her husband, Ken Williams, who we interviewed uh, last week uh, or last time on the show, which was a great thanks again for that, Ken. He was a treat. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to say the least, yeah, no, I, um, yeah, incredibly generous of uh, him to do that. And yeah, I mean, th that he's, that they're going into game making again, I think is, is very exciting with the untitled Ken's game coming out. Um, anyhow, what I'm getting at, Robert Williams designed this game. And uh, technically they sort of retrofitted the plot. So uh, Wizard and the Princess is kind of like a, a side, kind of like in the King's Quest um game universe if you want to call it that right yeah it was it was like re retroactively made to take place uh, like a, in the kingdom of daventry which is where this takes place yeah so i think one thing really cool with with this game and some maybe one or two of the high-res adventures did it but i think because it's graphics and you're controlling your character on the screen it it um stands out more is technically this is sort of an open world game in a way and and it loops which I think does a great job at making it seem bigger than the um, outside overworld map usually is. Well, yeah, it, it has geography and something that's so wonderful. You're actually a character on the screen, so there's no go east, go up. There's none of that. You're just walking around, and that gives you that simple act of being able to walk around gives you such so much of a better feel for the space that this game takes up and its geography. Have you taken a look at the manual for this game? I did find a manual uh, that has a very long prologue that gives the whole background to King Graham and explains in detail how all of the three great treasures of Daventry were stolen. And it's a very tragic story that involves them, that involves the king essentially getting cheated three times. Uh, and then it's just you know, after all, and some cute illustrations. I love the one where the king is like acute, pointing accusingly at the player. But then there's a little note about, you know, how you play it uh, with the map, with the pterodactyl zone. And I want that pterodactyl zone, damn it. That'd really be something like the, uh, like in the version I'm looking at, I think it's the PC Junior manual. Uh, king Graham looks a bit like a stoner. He's kind of squat looking. And it it's just really charming. It, um, I'll, I'll send you a link real quick to the one I am. I think it's different than what you're talking about, but it the illustrations help kind of paint a picture in your head because although these graphics were state of the art at the time, it really is something where uh, it, it, you know, it can be hard to maybe get into these graphics, especially if you didn't grow up with these games because they have a limited amount of colors. Even then, I think you have, better artwork in here, especially with things like houses, weirdly enough, than in most of the uh, high-res adventure games. 
Oh, I'm just told the, the manual, uh, the PC Junior manual you sent me. I love this description. Take on the challenges. Find the magic treasure. Put on your armor, which you don't do, and your right. thinking cap, which you do metaphorically, as you search the countryside in the days when knights were brave and bold. Yes, oh. and if you... Um, but do you see what I mean with this illustration of King Graham? Well, I love the little clip art of, uh, <laughs> of the, the knight. The diskette? Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah, and King Graham on the throne. He's, uh... No, King Graham's on the right, but he just looks so derpy looking with the nose and the... <laughs> it's it's oh, a very charming uh, illustration. It looks almost like, more like Leisure Suit Larry or something, but... He looks like a squire. He, he does. That's a great, yeah, squire or a bard. Um, hello, why McKean's Quest? But, yeah, this, uh... The one you're talking about, I think, was a later version, but this is the OG manual as the kids say and yeah, I um, love, oh i love this sample map where it suggests drawing a map on a sphere <laughs> <laughs> yes that's i mean it's trying to say like it's the world but yeah uh, what's what's funny is down below it it shows like a flow chart of a map oh and yeah. that's and that's really how see um roberta williams would design a lot of her games at first is sketch out locations and start connecting things and then come with the puzzles um kind of as she's doing that kind of a mind mapping exercise. Yeah. So it, it, I think one thing that could be, make this game tricky come to think of it um, with some players is so much of the puzzles are based on like Grimm's fairy tales, uh, mythology, if you will. Yeah. It's, it's sort of, it, it sort of presumes you have some familiarity with, with traditional fairy tales and folk tales, particularly the brothers Grimm and uh, Hans Christian Andersen. Good call on, on Anderson, yeah, because you have like Billy Goat Gruff, you have a um, a leprechaun. I mean, a lot of it's you know based yeah, Rumpel, out of Rumpelstiltskin. Yes, uh, you know, based out of the you know, the German and in um, United Kingdom Irish Scottish tradition for for these uh, legends. And I wonder if people playing this overseas, because certainly they said overseas releases in in um, I'm thinking particularly in Asian countries, if they had any frame of reference for these things, or if it just seemed like complete nonsense. I don't, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, cause if you don't, if you don't have that, if you don't have that cultural background, I'm sure a lot of it might seem obtuse. Although then again, if, if, if anime has, has told me and if anime and manga have told me anything, there seems to be a decent amount of familiarity with classic fairy tales in Japan. If only through like Disney movies and stuff that true. American yeah, no, Disney run is, over in the occupation is huge. Um, thinking of, you know, this game actually has animation, which none of the other, the other high-res adventures we've talked about before this on Sierra Quest did not. And I think actually the walking cycle for King Graham is actually pretty good, and they use variations of that for a lot of games to come. Oh, yeah. The, this this particular sort of power walk move is something we're going to see in, in lots of uh, Sierra Adventure games going forward. And something I loved, something that just kind of like blew me away, this game has one of the most beautiful introductions. Now, mind you, not much happens compared mm. to modern video games, but just like the use of the fanfare as you enter the castle is really nice. And that that bit where Graham bows to the king is so charming It's and so characterful. Because yeah. what happens when he bows? His hat falls off and he has to pick up his hat, dust it off and put it back on its on his head. And it all reads and it's it gets you on Graham's side immediately. Yeah, and, and you're right. You know, music is not as big in this game as it is in some of the later ones. Um, especially like in Quest for Glory, you were mentioning earlier, and it started, I think, having a lot more, or even Space Quest had some themes. But this, you know, in the title screen, you have something that would be kind of an unofficial Games Quest theme. It's an ancient medieval tune called Green Sleeves. Um, if you're in a, uh, in, like a lot of classic, uh, music themes uh, churches adapted them to to hymns and so um if you know the the song what child is this that's the same tune as green sleeves yeah it, it is a song that has persisted and been reinvented for on multiple occasions and and it d sounds pretty decent it's not like it's not grating like a lot of synthesized music of the era is it's it's i think the familiarity helps makes it sound more pleasant certainly and I like that when you're given the quest, um, you know, this game has no tutorials, which was common at the time. You just said, okay, find these three things and go. And even then, 
you don't have to go right into talk to the king if you don't want to. You can just start exploring. That is very true. And one thing I noticed, like when you when you enter the castle, like one of the guards specifically tells you, you better bow to the king. And and of course, you know, you bow to you when you were in front of him. I could not find any information on what happens if you don't bow. I presume the king just won't talk to you and give you the quest. Yeah, I mean, so so Sierra games are infamous for letting you die in a lot of ways. And although you you die mainly from like monsters or drowning and stuff in this one, I think this one is not so unfair as that you would die if you don't bow to the king at the beginning. Treason. Um, yeah. yeah. They hadn't reached that level of cruelty yet. Uh, but the quest, no. <laughs> the quest is classic quest stuff. You got to search for a mirror that tells the future, a magic shield that no weapon can pierce, and a magic chest that's always filled with gold every morning. Right. Um, also, some puzzles have multiple solutions, which is pretty unusual. Yeah, that was cool. I mean, that that's an amazing innovation. Because it has in the corner, you can see uh, constantly your your points instead of having to type in status or something to see what your score is. And so it often, uh, what I like is nonviolent solutions give you more points than violent solutions. But of course, it also has some inexplicable adventure gaming details, such as a ceramic bowl just being in the middle <laughs> of the forest. Yes, and um, isn't there something that can steal your inventory in this? Uh, I think the elf can. Yeah, if you let them get to you. And, and I, as a kid, and even now playing this, I still get some fear if I go on a screen and I hear the do 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 like the little music when there's a monster, because oh, yeah. they move pretty quickly and they're dangerous. And if you just go to the other screen and then double back, uh, a lot of times they won't be there anymore. Yeah, in fact, there's a number of puzzles that are sort of dependent upon you going off the screen and then immediately going back. And it's and that's kind of counterintuitive because you would assume the monster would persist and kind of patrol its area, but they never do. And so you just you that that gets you past a few different things is just leaving and immediately returning. One of my favorite examples of the two um, kind of big um, of a puzzle that has two solutions to this game is there's a dragon because this is a, a fantasy fairy tale kind of setting for a game. You need a dragon in there, of course, fire breathing. And you can um, kill it with the dagger, or you can throw water at him to douse out the fire and get what you need to get. Oh, yes. The mirror. So as long as we're talking about a, a well-designed puzzle, we ought to talk about a frustrating puzzle. So the gnome, there, mm -hmm. there's, there's the evil gnome who's got... Uh, <laughs> Who I think has the shield, if I remember correctly, or maybe maybe he has the chest. I don't recall which, but but you know, it's one of those things where you have to guess by name. So of course you want to type in Rumpelstiltskin because this gnome exists in a vacuum. Uh, but yes. Rumpelstiltskin does not work, at least not on the initial release. I have heard that right. there were re-releases where they updated it so Rumpelstiltskin would work. What you are supposed to put in is Rumpelstiltskin backwards. And the closest thing you have to a clue is, I believe, in the witch's hut, there's like a note that says some problems must be approached backwards or in reverse or something like that. Not just backwards, but it's not literally backwards, where it's um, N-I-K-S and so forth. You have to do it as, a, as an inverse kind of alphabet. Yes, that's the other thing. So so what you have to type in is the gnome's name is, because I saved this, I-F-N-K-O-V-H-G-R-O-G-H-P-R-M. That is way too many layers. That that wins my award for the Sierra Hard fuck you uh, puzzle of this game. <laughs> right, I have to correct you. With the gnome, you, you don't get one of the treasures, but you get the uh, the beans. Oh, right, right. Or, or a key, it's sort of, but it's kind of like a next to the last puzzle you need to get one of the big... Um, the three treasures and yeah that one i think uh the name for that puzzle i like to say is from uh, an old computer gaming world magazine where it says guess what the developer is smoking puzzle because <laughs> it basically and um, i mean you've, you've done a lot of like, we, we both on game design really but um oh, yeah. it's it, it's the player is, is unpredictable what they're going to do and that's both the fun and the frustration of game design is that you have to have a lot of contingency plans so to speak and when you have these a, a puzzle like this and it's a word puzzle I think if you were 
if I was doing a puzzle like this for a modern game, maybe I would have a, a mini game where you're shuffling letters around or something. But to to have to make this leap, uh, not not just to do the name backwards based on one obscure description, but as a reverse alphabet, um, this uh, I would just say this sold a lot of hint books and did a lot of hint lines. <laughs> like a lot of this puzzle is infamous because it, a lot of people would get stuck at this point. And yet I think that's one of the genius things about this uh, original King's Quest design and, and Sierra um, was, was was pretty good about this, especially in, in earlier games. There's not it's not like you're stuck in a few rooms and that's all you can go to. If you're stuck in one puzzle, you can move around and do something else. Like you're often pretty not screwed world, and I like that they sort of trust you to explore it on your own terms. That's very important to me as a player. Also, with the um, so-called kind of actiony sequences, climbing stairs, climbing the yeah. beanstalk. The or I can't believe it. Immediately, we have the origin of Sierra of a Sierra staircase. Yeah, and um, you know you could control these games with the keyboard or or a joystick. Um, and uh, the, the stairs and uh, rope and whatever else you have to climb are, are very, very skinny in particular. So uh, I find it helps to set your game speed down to slow. Oh, yeah. And just kind of go take a few steps to a saved game, but save it different from your main saved games, or if you're stuck, you're not screwed. And uh, it takes a lot of patience. I think once you get pretty good, I was able to do it on quicker speeds, but uh, a fan of uh, the show, um, Jess Morissette. He's uh, known as Decaf Jedi on Twitter, I believe. He helped develop a game called StairQuest, where it's a genius kind of uh, love letter to these games in which you um, all you do is climb really hard stairs, and then you have to go back down all the stairs at the end. Yeah, after you get the thing <laughs> at the top of the staircase, yeah. you've got to go all the way back to the bottom. I absolutely love that. It's an extremely uh, delightfully mean-spirited <laughs> game. Um, not only that, another game that, that is a call-out to this like original King's Quest is... Uh, I'm not sure if it's still around, but there's, there was a, a web, a Flash cartoon called Homestar Runner that was really popular, and they had a game called Peasant's Quest. Remember that? Oh, I do remember Peasant's Quest. In the style of King's Quest, but it's a lot more humorous, and yet it has a lot of purposely arcane puzzles with the infamous uh, dragon Trogdor burninating the peasants. <laughs> in fact, that's what it's the, the, the song that became kind of an early meme inspired uh, oh, that game. Yeah. And it's uh, it's both a good and a bad game, but I think it's bad on purpose, and I love it for that. <laughs> so, uh, so something that... <laughs> I, uh... Oh, excuse me. Something that I, I did... There was something that I couldn't help think uh, of is that early on in the game, you get a walnut out of a tree, uh, and when you open it, there's gold inside. And my immediate thought is, oh, this is the... And my immediate thought is, oh, this is the twist. The magic chest isn't a literal chest. It's a chestnut. Oh, wait, no. <laughs> no, this is one of those inexplicable things where there's a magic tree that produces gold, but the king doesn't care about that. He wants an actual chest. I thought they could have, that would have been a perfect pun. I wish they had gone with that. Yeah, you know, you mentioning puns is really funny. I was looking at some reviews of uh, the um, Lori and Corey Cole, the, the husband-wife designer team of the Quest for Glory games. They, they've come out with a new series of games called Hero U, as in the university. And some people were complaining, like, these games have too many jokes in them. They're not serious, like the old Quest for Glory games. And and someone pointed out, like, uh, do you not understand that, like, almost half the jokes in Quest for Glory are puns? Like, there's a, quite a lot of humor. And I think yeah, that's the Sierra games always did well, as they had a sense of humor. Oh, they're loaded with humor. Mm -hmm. This... This had, I mean, this has multiple examples of, of humor, but one of the thing, and this made me laugh out loud, when you swim down the well to get into the dragon cave, there's litter at the bottom of the well, like it's a typical like public waterway, including a battered can of Coke. Yes. And I just things, laughed out loud. Things go better with Coca-Cola. Things go better with Coke, including uh, dragons and men with feathered caps. Well, it really show, it shows like how much you can communicate with only a handful of pix pixels and colors. Yeah, you can see the the, the white Coca-Cola swirl. Coca-Cola classic, excuse me, given when this was released. Um, yeah. 
I also you have things like um, if you fall in the water, you have to type in swim to swim. Um, you can fall off of through holes that are just in the floor of people's homes or um, when you're up in the clouds to do that part of the quest. Uh, it, there's like you have to avoid pits and stuff. And although you get better with those as you go on, I think that does add some some challenge to the game and it does make um, King Graham kind of endearing. And well, that he adds... is clumsy. He comes off as clumsy. No, that's true. It's very it's very humanizing to have him be accident prone. But it's also it's also one of. But there's also that's that's there's a reason why adventure games would eventually remove death as a factor by and large. And in part, it's because of an overuse of things that will instantly kill you in games like this. Not just that you eventually would have like a some of them would have like an undo button, yeah, or, or load game to make it. Yeah. <laughs> save you a few steps or have a funny message as we get to King's Quest is when they early start that. And this and this did have a, a save option. So you could save and restore. And if you're doing the stairs, you could save every few inches. <laughs> and I would highly recommend that. Um, oh, yeah. So my my two favorite my, my two favorite bits of dialogue. Um, so the bowl turns out it's magic. It'll fill with food. So you give it to this uh, poor peasant couple that needs food mm -hmm. uh, to get their, I think their fiddle. And when you hand them the bowl, it's like puzzled. The couple wonders why you have given them a bowl. And <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that doesn't that yeah. just incorporate, like encapsulate so many inexplicable puzzle solving interactions you have in this game. It, it does. It's a bit meta. Um, and yet it's not making fun of the audience or making fun of bad game tropes. It's just kind of a, a tongue in cheek thing. Yeah. I mean, um, it's not the case for me, but I've heard with a, a lot of other people, games like King's Quest and stuff taught kids how to read, just like comic books did for a, oh, a, yeah. perhaps an older generation. And that um, it doesn't have, you know, the voices like the later versions would have. So that's always that makes these games quasi educational, I suppose. Or it's teaching them logic, it's teaching you uh, outside the box thinking. I mean, I think there's legitimate. Um, educational oh, things about these games even though it's not explicit it's like with uh eco quest or something well there's definitely a value to that absolutely i was just like what luck the huge giant fell asleep uh because yes that is lucky also huge giant as if there's going to be a giant of different <laughs> sizes later in this episode or in this game although something else i like about the giant being asleep there's some really fun sound design we've already talked about the fanfare i love the approximation of a goat bleat uh, yes. when the goat shows up later uh, and the giant the giant snores and mm -hmm. it's this great rumbly sound it almost sounds like a slow avalanche it's really nice yeah because with the pc speaker you can maybe play one or two notes at a time if you really fiddle with it but it's quite limited with what you can do and uh, you can do duration and pitch but not uh, you, you can't do you know, like a full-blooded opera on it, or you could try, but it would sound weird. So that it has any, that it uses it for, for sound effects and, and it, you can kind of tell what they're doing is, is really impressive. Oh, and I must, and I also have to say when, when Graham is leading the goat around, I just kept referring to them as goat and Grahams. <laughs> I, I just saw the goat and it made me think of that, uh, the meme of all these goats screaming. <laughs> I, I saw the recent uh, Muppet, um, Oh, the Muppet, Muppet uh, Haunted Mansion, yeah. Haunted Mansion, and I, it, it has a joke about that, a running gag about that meme, and I'm like, huh, that's interesting. Like, the internet didn't exist, really, when the Muppets started. And now you have, kind of reflects the uh, the times at which the different um, incarnations of the Muppets are happening. Well, they've spawned memes of their own, though. Uh, oh, yes, the Bohemian infamous... Rhapsody. The, uh, they did the memes Kermit, before memes were memes. Kermit drinking um, tea and all that. Yes. And a lot of, you know, I think one of the puzzles I just like is the, and not even puzzles, but you're walking around, you see all these bridges and some are wooden, some are stone, a lot of bodies of water. I, it, it really, um, and of course, most of it's like a verdant woods with these kind of uh, sloppy looking Christmas tree things. 
And yet, I think the, I think the houses look quite charming, and like the castle especially looks good in the beginning. Well, I think it, it all looks charming. It's something that's nice about these environments. Unlike again, a lot of of graphic adventure games, when you, like when you go into another screen, it's a whole new piece of art. It's not just the same field with a tree moved here and a rock moved there. And if you're playing on a system, you'd have to wait for it to load every time a new screen popped up. <laughs> yeah, well, th- thankfully it's not too bad. It's just blip 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 blip, and then the screen is full. Oh, you know what this game has? It has, I think, uh, what might be the first inventory joke. When you do get the shield, uh, when you pick up the shield, the text comes up, you put the shield in your pocket. Yes. Yeah, it's a lot of gag that everything fits in your pocket, even though by the end you're probably carrying, oh, 80-something uh, pounds, maybe 100 pounds worth of cargo with you of the inventory and and it's nice the inventory screen is a separate screen with kind of this blinding white background and black text and it can kind of remind you okay what do i have what can i use on this puzzle maybe because hmm. a lot a lot of the experience of playing these games is getting stuck if you're not using a walkthrough or you know you know plunk down the the five dollars for a hint book we're the spirit hunters and we're a show that treats hunter hunter and you Hakusho's author as the center of the universe some weeks we do linguistic analysis so the chinese meaning of this character is to smelt or refine but so the changed meaning in japanese it means to temper other times we get absolutely smashed so we take one shot every time yusuke uses the ray gun one hour later this is the least coherent episode oh, Sarah, you're... i think you're farming this you can find out more about the Spirit Hunters right here on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Fans of video games, history, or video game history will definitely want to listen to Retronauts. Each week, Bob Mackey and myself, that's Jeremy Parrish, dive into the stories behind the greatest games of the past and the history behind the hits of today. Check us out every Monday on the Greenlit Podcast Network. I th- And there's something uh, about the ending of the game, I think, that is just works really well. I mean, it's very simple. You go to the king, you get your quest, and you go back to him. Is like the overall loose narrative, as we discussed. And it, it, you feel a really sense of accomplishment at the end, because to get those three things, you had to do uh, dozens of different um, puzzles and actions. I and mean, it really feels like you uh, went on a big adventure. And at the end, the, uh, the king dies, and you become king. He doesn't just die. He's like, "Oh, good, you you solved my you solved my crisis," and then he ha- goes into an immediate Fred Sanford heart attack. Yes, <laughs> but that's kind of that's sort of a twist at the ending, right? That you immediately uh, resume the crown. Uh, yeah, I mean, you've been promised the crown, but yeah, just the fact that it happens so fast is is, is rather comical. I don't know if it's meant to be comical, but. It may just be, but just the game has had a humorous enough tone. I feel like it reads as comedy, whether or not it's it's depicted. Because if I guess mm-hmm. if it was meant to be taken seriously, rather than just showing him have the Fred Sanford heart attack, like text would probably come up on the screen that says, "Oh, the king ruled for a few more years, then passed gently in his sleep, and now Graham is king." Right. It is. Uh... Yeah, I mean, I can't think of um, anything else you want to talk about the original King's Quest. It's kind of a shorter game. Well, I remember, like, when you play the fiddle for the leprechauns, they're, like, the tune that plays over the speaker is, like, Turkey in the Straw. And all I can think of, ah, yes, that medieval tune, <laughs> Turkey in the Straw. I mean, I realize they're going to want to use, you know, public yeah. domain music because they don't have they don't have time or Al Lowe working on these games yet to compose music for them. But I feel like they should have gone with something medieval. Surely there's, like... Like the like the little beggar man that that Irish folk song that's fun that's fast that's high stepping that's recognizable. Yes, or you could even use um, the medieval tune that was adapted to uh, the hymn "Lord of the Dance." That sounds a bit oh, like a jig. Yeah. So there you go. It's um, really, I mean, yeah, the way this was advertised in the box, 3D animated adventure game. Now, 3D is a term that's been used over and over again in gaming, and it means different things depending on when you're talking about. By here, when it says 3D, it means a 2D image that has shadows that looks like it's 3D. But in the 90s, 3D would mean polygons. And eventually, like now, I guess 3D would mean... Um, like Probably VR, literal anamorphic 3D. Virtual reality, yes. Yeah, virtual reality would do it too. 
or 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 the um, the kind of faking of it where you can take a photo and make it look 3D when you post it on Facebook. Oh yeah. So so anyhow, yeah, this is um, I tried to show this to my stepbrother. He was probably in third or fourth grade at the time, and I said at the time I tried to build up the game, and I said they called this really realistic, and he couldn't stop laughing his ass off <laughs> at these <laughs> graphics as someone that was born probably, I don't know, in 1990, 92, something like that. Uh, and it, that, that was just, I felt a little bit insulted, but I had to kind of take a step back and be like, well, to him, this probably looks like, I don't know, like a turd moving around. I, I have no idea. Like, <laughs> Well, it's, 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 it's like, you know, if you, if, if you compare like the, the richest, most detailed Renaissance painting to, to like painting. a, yeah, do a cave painting, and despite despite the fact that those cave paintings can communicate a hell of a lot, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, and and not to mention it's the only form of like a primary source uh, documents, if you will, from for for Neolithic uh, thousands of years, yeah, thousands if not hundreds of years, um, depending on how you count things. Oh, right. one other thing Go I would on. like to point out. Um, so we talked we talked about the score. So in King's Quest. Uh, the the maximum score is 158 points. You're always some fraction of 158 points. However, if you go through the game a certain way, you get 159 points. Uh, Ken Williams uh, and Roberta Williams were asked about this, and hmm. Roberta Roberta's response was that was it. Because other other Sierra games that use points also had things where you could get extra points, and there's like an infamous it was a Castlevania Symphony of the Night where you could have the game two hundred and seven percent completed. Um, this yes, yes. early though, they do not believe that is intentional. Uh, that is either a bug or one of the programmers who helped them program the game hid something in it worth that extra point. Um, I think right now the going theory, it has to do with some way you interact with the bowl, although I'm not 100% sure. I don't think that's been confirmed. I see. Um, there, you know, this can get ported to a lot of different platforms. One version that looks really weird is Sega Master System. Huh. Had a version that we're not going to review on this show, but it's just worth mentioning. I only found this out on um, YouTube a few years ago when I was doing research for something else. Does it have like a keyboard expansion so you can type in the commands? I It's been so long I don't remember, but the, the graphics look both better and worse in a way. Um, it's pretty bizarre. Oh yeah, I'm looking at it now. Some of the thing, things are a bit more blocky, not quite as charming. Although, I gotta say, the uh, the uh, troll looks like a troll, and the castle looks like a castle, uh, and there's more little like fiddly like bits and dots and pixels and things. Yeah, perhaps more animations too. Come to think of it, um, of course, I still have no idea how you interact with things. Although maybe maybe this remake came late enough. Oh no! Even the box says a text adventure action game. So hmm. you must be typing stuff in, but I don't know how. Well, it could be like those, like Jeopardy on the Nintendo or something, where you're just using the controller to punch in every letter, uh, which is tedious. I'm not quite sure. Oh, you know, if you want a visual treat, there are people who have taken all the environments from King's Quest and laid them out, like, as, essentially as a map, but it forms one complete work of art. Definitely look up a full King's Quest uh, map. It's fascinating to look at. And if you're trying to get through the game quickly, if you're on a time crunch, this could be a good navigational aid. Right. Um, it, it's also worth mentioning, you know, the CR later did do a, an EGA remake of this. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that chronologically when we get there because they did a whole series of remakes oh, yes. that, um, for whatever reason, didn't do as well as they would have liked, so they, they stopped doing them. But uh, in 2001, um, when we were in college, in fact, geez, that was over... That's 20 years ago. You just feel old. Uh, Where have all the flowers gone? Right. Um, Chiara Entertainment, they later became AGD Interactive, released a uh, unofficial remake uh, that uh, did uh, VGA graphics, had a mouse interface, and had um, the original voice actor of Keen Graham from King's Quest uh, 5 through 7, uh, writer Josh Mandel, who wrote a lot of the games, uh, 
doing voices and stuff. And it had had voices the whole game, I think, was voiced. And uh, cool. And so, I mean, if you want to play a fan version, that one is good and it eases the pain, I think, with maybe if you have trouble with um, walking downstairs and stuff. Of course, you can still die that way with the mouse games. But for, I mean, the, the amount of work in the fan game and in fact, with the, uh, it's called, oh, is, is, um, there's, I think it's called Adventure Game Studio or something like that. There's a piece of software that fans have been using for decades now to make uh, their own adventure games, uh, either inspired by these old King's Quest, but mostly it's the mouse-driven ones. So Yeah, you, there, there yeah. are a lot of fan-produced, like, King's Quest and Space Quest, like, sequels and interquels and spinoffs and things. Not just that, but original games that you can actually buy on places like Steam and good old games. I mean, it's really inspiring. It's made a sort of cottage industry. Because for um, years, magazines would say, the adventure game is dead. The adventure game has returned. <laughs> and it was kind of this prophecy that would happen. But now it, it's really a genre you see present in other genres. Like in Metal Gear, you might have to, I don't know, find the cigarettes to give to the terrorist. But um, it's really these like fan lower budget kind of games that keep the adventure game uh, alive as opposed to it being the most popular genre when you go to the computer game store. Yeah, although it it is it is like still present in like like was it like Humblewood or Thimbleweed Park? Oh, there great are point. yes, there yep. there are still adventure games being made even if they're not the juggernaut they once were. No, totally, yeah. Um, so I would recommend King's Quest One. I think you know it's it, right off the bat these are easier to get into uh, for modern players than the high res adventures that were text without you controlling the guy in the screen, it really adds a lot of charm when you have a, someone that is not yourself. Uh, not that the text adventures are bad, but it's just a different sort of experience. Um, go on. Yeah, I'd, rec I'd recommend it as well. And and it's so it's so nice to have like a, a, a Sierra adventure game like this where you're not on some invisible time crunch. I mean, that that that's something that the, the high-res adventures... I kind of found infuriating is especially mystery house. If you don't move forward in the most efficient way possible, the game will just kill you. This game doesn't have that. You can explore this world at your leisure and kind of truly play it at your own pace. And that is very important to the gaming experience. One thing that Sierra always did a great job of with their games is having it. So, um, they would re-release the games over and over again, just like Disney would re-release their stuff on uh, home video. And, um, you know, they'd have like King's Quest 1 through 3, get get classic games for, you know, only $30, right? And oh, but yeah. um, the, the first time I really played uh, all these games, and this was actually the version I got, was in 1994, they had the uh, King's Quest Collector's Edition for Sierra's 15th anniversary, and it came in a red box. Did you have this one? No, I did not have this one okay. specifically. I had and and this had King's Quest one through six on it. Um, I think King's Quest seven was not out yet, or just a new game at the time. Um, but it it's just a really handsome kind of uh, red cover with King Graham kind of pointing uh, above the classic King's Quest logo. Um, so, would you recommend the original King's Quest? Yes, absolutely, with no reservations. Great. So um, now let's, it's been so long, I've forgotten the segments of the show proper. Uh, <laughs> let's move on to uh, what you're playing. And when we talk about a game we've been playing, it doesn't have to be an adventure game. It can be a video game, it can be a computer game, it can even be a board game. Uh, Thrasher, what have you been playing? So I played uh, back, back to back because I, I really got invested in them. I played Subnautica and Subnautica Below Zero. I'm sure I got these for free in some uh, kind of humble bundle, but I don't think I've ever played them. Can you explain I, what the game's like? I definitely recommend playing them. So the thing, the thing both games have in common is that you're a person who is stuck uh, on this planet that is it's pretty much, it's largely a water planet. There's very, very little dry land, and you have to hunt to find it. So you're swimming in, in water, you are... You are gathering resources to survive, like purified water that you can drink, uh, fish you can eat, uh, and resources you can use. You have this little fabricator tool, which you can use to like build a little like underwater base and habitat. And 
it's full of just some wonderful sci-fi elements. It feels like you were in a real ecosystem as you swim outward uh, from where you from where you begin. You discover new ecosystems with new creatures in it, and like it, it really feels like you're in a real alien ecosystem. And some effort is made to make the organism seem alien while still having like familiar traits so it's usually you're not surprised when you can like you can tell the difference between predator and prey and whatnot and the music is wonderful it's very atmospheric there are some really just truly alien things uh big things feel big like there really is a wonderful sense of scale in the game and as long as you're surviving you're free to swim and explore um uh kind of at your own pace and you could really kind of get get lost in it, but uh, and there is some like puzzle solving and some actual like stuff, more specific stuff you do as the story of the game unfolds. But it unfolds at the pace at which you explore, and it's and it's just so wonderful. And the only thing vaguely spoiler I'm going to say uh, for the first game is you know you're oh you're swimming, you finally have a submarine that you can sort of putter around in. And you're 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 seeing new weird coral formations and colors you've never seen before. Oh, holy shit! Alien architecture. And then that changes the game going forward. That when you spot that first bit of alien architecture under the water. Neat. Yeah, and the set and the second game, and so the end result is you are trying to build a rocket to to escape the planet because you did crash there. The second game, you've all you've crashed there because you're investigating someone's disappearance, because uh, a, a relative of yours disappeared on that planet. Um, and in that one, the reason it's called uh, sub uh, below zero is that you're close to one of the planet's poles. And so if you ever go out into the surface, it's cold and you have to keep track of your your body temperature. Um, and in that one, you're not really trying to leave. You're trying to solve this mystery, but you do discover something that sort of changes the nature of what you're doing on that planet. Um, it The graphics look better. The interface is better in Sub-Zero. That being said, it doesn't feel as big as the first one. Although it's still a very satisfying experience. I would say it's just as good as the first Subnautica, but in a different way. Yeah, I'll have to, that sounds really interesting after the description. I'll have to check that out. It's, um, yeah, I haven't played something with an underwater setting as a game in a long time. Yeah, and just just exploring is just kind of like its own reward so much mm -hmm. of the time. Like all the important things that happen in the game happen because you decide to go somewhere you've never been before right um so for me i've been you know there's um as of this recording this movie uh dune is going to be coming out in the united states the rest of the world has had it already uh yes part. you know jersey jason uh saw dune the other day oh oh did he um yes what did you think he was underwhelmed i yeah you know i've heard either raves or people go, it's okay. Um, the movie I'm going to see uh, later today um, is the new James Bond movie, and that one's very divisive. Hmm. But yeah, with uh, anyhow, with the new Dune movie, I was inspired to look at one of the first CD-ROM games I had on my computer. My dad got to see a version of this when E3 was in Atlanta, which it was, um, it would briefly alternate between Atlanta, I think maybe in other cities or something like that. Uh, Dune, um, it was a tie-in to the 1984 David Lynch uh, film. Yeah, that's um, something a lot of people forget is the look of the David Lynch film was the look of the brand for almost 20 years. Right. And this Dune game, it's not Dune 2, the real-time strategy game that, um, you know, kind of competed with, with Warcraft and, and really kicked off the genre in earnest. This one, Dune, is um, from uh, Cryo Interactive, published by Virgin Games. Uh, it's uh, French developers, and um, it, it feels that way. It's very strange. Part of it is like an adventure game, sort of like King's Quest, except it's first person for the most part, and you're, uh, you know, trying to solve puzzles. But then you're also trying to train up your Fremen army to win against sort of these battles at the end. So it's this kind of turn-based wargaming thing. Uh, and like you were mentioning with... Um, some of those older adventure games, there is a ticking time clock in this. If you don't do anything, the Harkonnens will win and you'll die. Or you'll die uh, if you get lost in the desert without enough food. 
and uh, and and so forth. It's it's an extremely hard game. There is a, a disc and a CD-ROM version. The CD-ROM version used clips from the movie. It also had voice acting that was um, not so good. But the, I'm trying to find the credits for this game. But the music in this is excellent. It actually had a soundtrack on CD at the time, and it's this real sort of trippy uh, kind of I don't know. I guess they call it like chill music. Kind of ch- uh, that's good to write to or good to relax to it in, in my mind. Uh, Lo-fi hip-hop beats and all that. Yes, yes. And, and they have the likeness rights for Cal McLaughlin in the game, but not that many. I don't think <laughs> almost none of the other actors. So that's kind of weird. Uh, or maybe they... And, and if you look, there's like an earlier version where he looks... Uh, Paul looks very... He plays Paul Atreides, the hero in the story. That, that looks very different from the other stuff. So um, did you ever play this game? No, I never played the original. Uh, I, I only played uh, the real-time strategy sequel, yes. which that's that's got to be unprecedented. Where the where the sequel is a completely different genre of game. <laughs> I mean, so what happened? There was like different licensing stuff uh, for the Dune games, and uh, originally this the development of this Dune game was in trouble, and they thought it wouldn't come out. So the name for Dune Two was going to be Dune Battle for Arrakis, and then uh, they, um, you know, they they corrected. Uh, their course, uh, got their shit together and finished this game. So now they had to call theirs Dune 2, even though they're not related, despite uh, <laughs> you know being inspired by the movie visually. And in the case of this first Dune game that uses actual clips from the movie, uh, you know, literally has has a, a lot more to do with the movie than the other stuff that just kind of took visual cues for how the Mentats looked and so forth. So yeah, um, I, I recommend it. It's a pretty strange uh, game. Uh, there's there's nothing quite like it. Unfortunately, there is not a uh, official re-release of these games available, um, which is too bad. Uh, the the reason I heard, and I don't I don't know if this is this is just rumor, but um, I heard the Frank Herbert estate uh, with the new Dune movie once thinks these old-fashioned uh, these classic games look um don't look good enough for modern audiences and it would dilute the brand but i would argue it's just the opposite uh, especially westwood studios real-time strategy dune games they did a dune 2 uh dune 2000 and battle emperor for dune is that right uh yes and I, and emperor battle for dune excuse me and I would I would argue that these games are what really preserved the brand. There's a whole generation of, of Dune fans that know Dune primarily for the video games and not for the books or any of the other media tie-ins. Yeah, because Sci-Fi Channel did the miniseries of Dune and then Children of Dune, which um, was Dune with Sci and Children of Dune. But yeah, you you had only the six original uh, books by Frank Herbert until um, his uh, son uh, Brian Herbert. Uh, his estate found a uh, a safety box, safety deposit box, just in a bank in Washington State that had um, old computer diskettes with Dune Seven written on them. And I mean that the, these outlines from Frank Herbert has been inspired the dozens of um, sequels and prequels and interquels and what have you <laughs> that we've gotten from Kevin J. Anderson and uh brian herbert and brian herbert also is a novelist himself before he, he's done more than just these uh dune sequels and prequels yes. um so there you go i babbled about dune too much but it's hard not to because dune has a lot going on hey you know you know what what i like which is it, it did not take off at all but the dune collectible card game from the late 90s i thought was a really great game i never which also realized they did the a dune one I, I never realized Dune had one. It seemed like everything else did, so that makes sense. But yeah, I mean, it, it kind of came and went. There was the original core set. It had, uh, I believe, one or two expansions, but it it just didn't take off, which which was a shame. It was a brilliantly designed game, and it looked really good. I mean, it it, it still used the visual language from the David Lynch films, but that just kind of helped everything feel more unified, frankly. So when you say um. Unified. Did did you recall if they looked like the actors, or was it just more like they, the, uh, the the still suits and and the the look of the um, they, accoutrements? They, 
they did not I they did not have license rights for the actors so far as I know, but like everything, like the Ben and Jess are all wear the same dress and have that same kind of baldness. Uh you can although you can't tell, like like I believe I had the Lady Jessica card. Uh, it looks damned close to the Lady Jessica in the film. It's like there, there's like a handful of changes so they can't get sued. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and it was just like mechanically it was great because you weren't you weren't fighting to eliminate the other player. You were fighting to have the most money, political power. You're, you're fighting to have the most money, spice and clout in the Imperial court. What's like, really cool about that um, first Dune game I was mentioning is there's a few ways you can win. You can win by combat, but you can also win with an ecological victory. If you make oh, enough of cool. Dune uh, grow vegetation, which is um, something the movie uh, realized in a way that's that's different from the book, I'll just say. Yeah. Uh, the book I, is I thought that was plants. a neat touch. What? The book? The book what about is the book? actual plants. Well, yes, not uh, Deus Ex Machina Rain. <laughs> but no, that that is cool about the card game. And did they do a tabletop Dune game? Because you're into a lot of that stuff. Oh yeah, there. Well, there, there's actually there have been multiple Dune uh, board games. The best being uh, the Dune board game. It's been around since the '70s. Uh, Gale Force Nine did a uh, did a, a, a wonderful re-release of it. And I, although I, there might be, there there are rumors that there's going to be one tying into the movie, but if uh, let me find the specific title uh, here, there's yeah, one Archie's, that came out already with the art that ties into the movie because the movie's been delayed because of uh, COVID. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's uh, just Dune the board game. The uh, there's the there's the there's the re-release from like a year or two ago, which has its own like visual look, and then there's a re-release which i think may use a streamlined version of the rules which ties specifically into the into the movie but it really is wonderful like you can't win the game without cutting weird political deals with players and it and like it's clearly uh St steven alotka and the other designers of it they clearly have a love of the source material there's just like little details that are in the game that you would not get unless you had a close reading of the book to the point where I love when when a a true military fight happens, if one side plays the la the las gun and the other side plays the shield, both armies are obliterated. That's funny. It's a great detail that I love that the game preserved. Absolutely. Well, that's really cool. I never would have thought. I mean, I, I guess it makes sense in retrospect. You would have uh, Dune and all those different versions, but that's that's really neat. I mean, I also think you could, um, if you wanted, you could do like a version of Clue that's Dune theme. <laughs> <laughs> it was the Baron Harkonnen with the Hunter Seeker. In I, was, the I was thinking, yeah, with the tooth. With the tooth. Dr. <laughs> Huey with the tooth. Remember the tooth. And uh, and for once, Huey uh, is played by uh, an Asian actor uh, in the new movie. I think that's... Because I, that certainly wasn't the case in the David Lynch one, where he's played by uh, a guy who's a great. Um, oh, what's you his name? You mean to tell me Dean Stockwell isn't Asian? No, no, he he's about as Asian as Sean Connery and uh, <laughs> oh, whatever the James Bond was. Um, Jesus, yeah. Uh, but Dean Stockwell, you know, was in a, a lot of David, a few David Lynch stuff uh, over the years, and. Uh, uh, speaking of quantum leap, they might be bringing that back. Scott Bakula seems to mention that every two years or so. But it, now you're you're really getting uh, Law and Order is um, coming back the original for a little bit. So you're getting a lot of these kind of not. I don't know. I, I would call them maybe a soft reboot. Perhaps I'm not quite sure. Um, you, know, you know what I want? I want uh, yeah. I want them to bring back Erie, Indiana. But like the two main kids move back to Indiana because like one of their parents are dead and they have to like settle some stuff with the estate and the weirdness is still going on. That was a good show that I believe Joe Dante was a executive producer on. Uh, yes. I, I think he was also a co-creator. Oh, oh, could be. Yeah. I mean, he, he had um, on his uh, podcast, uh, he does with Josh Olson, the movies that made us, he mentioned, you know, that was a really cool show that it kind of didn't have a fair shake, but it, uh, the, the viewers were always very um, supportive and passionate about I the show. Certainly was, and and it did, and strangely enough, 
it did come back in the weirdest way. Really? Oh yeah. So, so, uh, so years after uh, Irianna, this was in like because I think Irianna, what like that was like the late eighties, early nineties. Sounds like it. Um... Like it predates the X Files. Um. Mm-hmm. So, for whatever reason, like Disney Channel got the reruns to Erie, Indiana and started and started playing them in like the mid nineties. And they, it got so big that there was an attempt to remake it and it ended up new episodes of Erie, Indiana ended up getting produced uh, for the Fox network for their Fox kids Saturday morning lineup, which I think by a third party, I think, I think Joe Dante's production company had nothing to do with it. Um, and the premise of the new show is that there are two kids who are very similar, but still different from the kids from the main show who are fans of the main show. And the short of it is a freaky thing happens that releases weirdness from their what? VHS tapes of the show that makes their Indiana strange. And then from there, it's just them investigating kind of Kitty's X-Files stuff with very little budget or flair. Although there is a precedent for that, because there's an eerie Indiana episode about a remote control where if you handle it wrong, it will swap you with a character from the show you're watching. God, I think my favorite, you know, example of a kid's media being adapted from something that's kind of more adult is Tales from the Crypt had a cartoon game show or something. Well, well, they had it had a game show, but it also had. Uh, Tales both. from That's the right. Crypt Keeper. Yes, Tales, which was a cartoon, which was um, considering that, the, the, especially the original HBO version of Tales from the Crypt is pretty saucy. Uh, th- that's just very amusing to me, as is the RoboCop cartoons. But this, I think we've we've um, gone really far off track and we've talked about our games. Well, so, uh, Well, what's nuts with like Tales from the Crypt Keeper um, so it had it had two seasons in ninety one in ninety three one in ninety four, and then it came back in nineteen ninety nine for another full season. <laughs> the rights and, to Tales from the Crypt are very complicated. Oh yes, I'll just say that much. Um, so next time on Zero Quest, what is the next game chronologically? I actually don't know. I, I don't know either. Window. Let's look this up. Hold on. I, I forgot somewhere along the second Dune tangent. You can tell we haven't recorded in a while. We're trying to get all of our stuff in right now. Shop talk. You know, speaking of shop talk, one thing that uh, that broke my heart a little bit is um, there's still the Twitter account for Sierra because Activision was using that as a brand briefly in oh, 2017 yeah. for the King's Quest um it's not a remake, I'd say it's a total reboot. Um, that was actually pretty good. Uh, the Williams had nothing to do with it. But now if you click the website for Sierra, it takes you to a, a grocery store website. Oh. <laughs> that made me, I oh, laughed and cried at the same time. Uh, I'm switching, come on, I need to sort this by release date, not name. See how the sausage is made. You know, on Arrakis, they have spice sausages. They do have spice sausages, and these are. Hold on, King's Quest. King's Quest Two would be the next one. That's what I would have guessed. I just wasn't sure. So in '85, one year later, King's Quest Two: Romancing the Throne. Marvelous. After that will be, both of our first adventure games, The Black Cauldron. Fantastic. Followed by King's Quest Three and Space Quest One. So if you want to peak i didn't realize that was that's interesting i didn't know it came out so soon but it makes sense they had the engine in place at the same walking animations yeah so next time we talk about king's quest 2 romance in the throne it has um in some ways i'd say more of a narrative and is uh perhaps more i would say definitely more horror imagery if you will not that i think it's especially scary um anything you want to tease them about with king's quest 2 Actually, no, this would be the first time I'm playing King's Quest 2. I have you very okay. little experience huh. with the King's Quest wow. series. I did not know that. I was going to try to imitate Jimmy Carson, but I can't do That's not his name, is it? God damn it. Johnny Carson. Jimmy Car- Good old Jimmy Carson. <laughs> I'm Jimmy Carson. Carson. I got a peanut farm. Yes. No, that's Jimmy Carter. Yeah, I know. I know. 
And no, he doesn't, because he divested himself of all of his business interests, uh, including the family farm, when he became president. As and presidents he never are supposed took back to do. Interests. That's right. Nuts about nuts. Oh, it's a long day. Um, it's only seven in the morning over here. Jesus. Okay. <laughs> uh, you can follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. Um, download episodes of the show at sequelcast2.com. And our theme song is written and performed by Mark with a C. Check out his music at markwithac.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram. King Graham. Oh. Uh, at wt2art dot uh, not dot com just at wt2art. Look out, King Graham, a poisonous snake. Ooh, ooh. Yeah. So for a Sierra Quest, until next time, this is Matt. <laughs> this is Thrasher. Saying <laughs> the peasants wonder why you gave them that bowl. It's a goat. It's a carrot. Yeah, I like how a lot of those descriptions are pretty matter of fact. Yeah. <laughs>